All right, good to be together again this morning. So normally sermons come out of me 40, 45 minutes. Looks like we got 32 minutes. So if you got to throw something at me so we can get to the baptism, feel free. And we'll wrap it up. We'll see how it goes. I want to start this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Mark, but I'd like to start this morning uh, with some words from the Apostle Paul. And uh, just reflectively consider what he says here. Uh, in his letter to the church at Corinth. This is, uh, Paul's making an argument of what we ought to boast in. The Corinthians had been really boasting in uh, performance, gifts, their strength, and Paul has a different idea, and he talks about how God had given him great visions, uh, but that could be a temptation to be conceited, and so God uh, had to instruct Paul so that he didn't become conceited. And this is how God responded to Paul. Uh, God had given him a thorn in the flesh, and uh, Paul had asked God to remove it. And this is what God told uh, Paul. He says, uh, my, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast, I, I will brag, I will exalt all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because it is when I am weak that I am strong. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think about that kind of a statement, that kind of a claim? I'm, I'm content to be weak, to, to feel like I have no resources. I have come to the end of my rope. I'm content with that. I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't have what it takes to get through tomorrow. I'm content with that, Paul says. Uh, that word contentment actually often translated as pleased. This, this is a different word than used in Philippians. This has the idea of pleasure. I take pleasure, Paul says, in insults. People use verbal words to shame me. It pleases me, Paul says. Bring it on. It says, I delight. I delight in hardships. Sorrow, pain. I delight in that, Paul says. Come to me. I'm okay with persecutions. People mistreating me to harm me, to seek my worst. I'm okay with that, Paul says. I welcome that. I, I delight in that. I'm satisfied with calamities, loss, feeling alone in the world. I'm okay with that. I, I'm satisfied with that. I welcome that. I delight in that. That's a little bit jolting to the soul. Now, the reason why he says it, I look at how it, he says it in the passage here, uh, verse 9. My power, God saying, my power is made perfect or it's completed. It reaches its goal in weakness. 
not by protecting you from weakness, not keeping you from danger, not keeping you away from hardships. That's not what God's power is going to do. God's power is going to take you into the weakness, into the calamities, and there you will experience it in a real way, in a new way, in a deep way. And Paul says, therefore, if that's the case, I welcome it. I boast in that, and I will be content for God to do whatever he needs to do to get me to the place where I welcome his grace. Because it's actually in the hardships where God's grace will flow to me. We oftentimes think of God's power or God's grace keeping, away, keeping us away from the hardships. Paul says the opposite. It's God bringing us to the place where we have no resources. We've expended everything. We don't know what to do. And Paul says that's where it is. That's the, the hot spot. That's where God's grace will be experienced for you. In other words, weakness or hardships or calamities, they, it may be an obstacle to my, my earthly comfort, but it will be a conduit for God's grace, a conduit for God's power. Conduit, you know, the, the, the tubes where water flows through from plumbing or, or electricity, right, electric wire. So it's... It, the hardships we experience or the weaknesses we feel and experience, it will be an obstacle to our earthly comfort. That, that will be the case. It will not be comfortable. Paul says, when I am weak, the weakness doesn't go away, it's when I'm weak, then the weakness is actually a conduit for God's power in my life. That's jolting to my soul. And Paul says it here in, in more of a, teaching format, letter format. Uh, we're going to see it here in the uh, Gospel of Mark in story form. We actually see a man that is utterly desperate for his son to be healed and has nothing left. And we see some disciples that are very self-reliant. And it seems that Jesus is trying to help the disciples see, you need to be like that father who is desperate because it is in the desperation. It is when you have nothing when God's grace will actually come and flow to you like a mighty river. So I think the claim of the passage in Mark is something like this. The way of Christ, the way of following Christ is God's power is experienced in weakness. Where God's grace flows to us in the weakness of desperate dependence. If you want to experience God's grace, he says, then enter into a place of weakness and dependence upon the Lord. So we're in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and if you remember the first eight chapters, Mark is making the case of the identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, the divine Son who took on flesh, and demonstrating his authority. And once we hit 8.22 to the end of chapter 10, Jesus now instructing the disciples showing them what does it actually like now look like to follow Christ? What is the way of Christ? And it's a little bit unexpected because they think the Son of Man is going to come victoriously and throw, overthrow all the earthly uh, rulers that oppress them. But Jesus says, no, the way of Christ is actually laying down your life. It's cross-bearing. It's going to your own death for the sake of the kingdom. And here we see another unexpected way of the king. It's God's power is not keeping us from weakness. It's bringing us into weakness so that we experience God's grace. 
we'll kind of go through the passage here relatively quickly. Verse 14, once again. And when they came to the disciples, this is Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John, remember, from the previous passage. They were up on a mountain. They came to the disciples at the bottom of the mountain, and they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes were arguing with the other nine of the disciples. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus coming down, uh, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And just make sure you got the scene here then, that these, Jesus and the three other disciples are coming down from the mountain and talk about, uh, uh, you know, coming down from the mountaintop experience, right? They had just seen the glory of Jesus revealed to them in no other way they had ever seen. Remember, the, the, the glory of Christ was shining. And now it's sort of like if you've ever gone to a conference or a retreat or something, and you really, you really felt like God was speaking to you, you had this experience that God was ministering to my soul. You're refreshed. But then you've got to go home and deal with sinners again, right? <laughs> you've got to deal with your own self. It's, it's back to life, back to reality, right? And that's, what, that's what's going on for these disciples. They're coming, coming down the mountain, and they're arguing. This whole crowd's arguing with the other disciples. And so Jesus then uh, asks them a question because everybody runs over to Jesus in verse 16, Jesus asked them, most likely, I think, probably the disciples here, or it could be the scribes, but he asked, what, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, so not the disciples or the fair, uh, scribes, but someone from the crowd answers, Teacher, I brought my son to you because he has a spirit that makes him mute, and when, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I came, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to do it. So here, here we meet our dad in the scene, and he is one of the main characters here. And he actually introduces us to the big problem of the scene. There's a couple of problems going on. The first problem is, is the boy. He's demon-possessed. And we'll hear that this has been going on from childhood, which is obviously a major, major problem. The second problem, though, is the dad himself. He's utterly desperate. He's, he's been watching his son being tormented by this demon. And that's a, a helpless, helpless feeling. I mean, all, all parents will experience something to this effect as they watch their child experience something and they can't, you can't do anything. It can be something small, like they're just sick on the couch and you just you wish you could get them out or get, get them off the couch and make them well and you can't. Or it could be some sort of an injury uh, or it could be a, a lifelong chronic uh, illness or uh, just a cr chronic pain and, and it's, you, you, you feel helpless. And some, some know this at a very, very deep level and it's painful. And part of the pain is that it's so unequally distributed as well. That there's, and you know there's nothing you can possibly do. You've tried everything. And many of you know what this is like. And so if you can imagine the, the dad in this scene, it's, he's, he's probably felt like he's been at the end of the rope for years now. But news has come that this traveling teacher, Jesus, has authority over demons. We've seen him do it throughout the book. His authority over leprosy, over the paralytic. He's, he's raised a, a, a girl from the dead. 
And now he's come to town, and maybe he packs things up in the morning. I don't know. I'm just trying to imagine the scene. He packs things up in the morning, tells his, his wife, I'm going home, or I'm going out today. I'm going to find him in the marketplace, and I'm bringing home a healed son. With great excitement, he goes out and he shuffles through the crowd, and there he spots the disciples of Jesus doing their stuff. And he runs through the crowd, and the crowd moves away, gasping because there he's got his son with him. That's the demon possessed boy. Nobody wants to be by him. And through the shame and through the accusations of the crowd, he gets over to the disciples and he brings the boy before him. And the disciples, they, they start their stuff. You know, they got their formula. Whatever it is, this is what they've done in the past. Jesus, remember earlier in the book, Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. Chapter 6, they went out and did it. So now they, they kind of know what to do. They start doing it. And maybe they pray this way or pray that way. That doesn't work, and they keep talking. Well, hey, maybe, maybe lay both hands on them, and they try this. That's not working. And suddenly they realize, like, th- this, is, this is like, you know, if a car goes over a fire hydrant, if you've ever seen that, and the, the water's going, and, and somebody tries to bring a piece of duct tape to put over it. Like, it's, it's not going to work. They realize we've met our match. We don't know what to do. And so they step back, and now the scribes start accusing them. Who do you guys think you are? Trying to deceive these people? You got no power. And the disciples say, you know, no, we, we follow Jesus of Nazareth. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him cast out demons. He gave us his authority. You guys are fakes. You guys are frauds. Get out of here. You're trying to deceive these people so you can take advantage of them. Now their disciples are disoriented. So even when Jesus comes over to ask them a question, they don't even answer. They don't know what to do. And now the, the dad, think of how, how helpless he now feels. This is the one solution left. And there's nothing. And you can hear the desperation in his voice as he realizes they're not able to do it. And that's the other problem. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell down on the ground, and he rolled around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How how long has this been happening to him? And he said, it's been happening from child since childhood. It's it's often often cast him into the fire and into the water, seeking to destroy him. But look, if if you could do anything, anything at all, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if... If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. You can can hear the the belief starting to wane in the dad here. Probably leaves very expectant as he goes out. And as he's watching, they're not able to do it, the disciples. The questions then come. If, If you can do anything, just something. 
Help. Help. To which Jesus gives a, a different angle. It's, he's, he says the question's not if, if I have the ability to do that. That's, that's been settled already. God can do anything. I'm here. I, I can do that. The question is not my ability. The question is whether or not you will believe that I have that power. Because it's in, the, in, in the, the weakness of depending fully on me and believing me that the power will flow. That's the question here. Which takes us then to these famous beloved words by many followers of Jesus throughout the centuries of this utterly desperate, dependent help from the dad. Verse 24, immediately, the father cried out, and he said, I too believe, but help my unbelief. This is, this is the realization that the simple thing of just trusting the Lord, I can't do it. I, 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 I'm trying. I can't move the needle. Nothing's working in my heart to believe more. I have nothing. But you do. You're the only one that has that kind of power to move my heart. And so this is this realization of the, these needy words. I have nothing here. And if you want me to believe, I can't do that. You are going to have to do that. And it's this desperate dependence upon the Lord. Please, Lord, give me the faith. I do believe, but I don't have what you're asking. Give me more. Would you help me? Help, Lord. It's this desperate cry. And brothers and sisters, that is a beautiful moment in the eyes of the Lord to see the desperation, to realize you've come to the end of your rope. You have nothing left but one to go to. All your skills have worn out. All your gifts won't do it. All your resources can't help you, but one can, and that's God Almighty. And the Lord is pleased with that. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now Mark, that's the end of the scene. He's, he's got no interest in carrying this narrative on, because there's still another problem. The, it's the disciples here that are being taught. What does it look like to follow Jesus? They're still trying to figure out, why couldn't we do that? Jesus did, just did that. What's wrong with us? Maybe we got the formula wrong. And so Mark is going to take us right to the place where we're going to solve that problem. And it's actually going to be the same solution. The help, help, Lord, that comes from the, from the dad is the same thing the disciples need in all of life. 28, uh, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked Jesus privately, so what was that all about? Why, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now what's interesting in the statement that Jesus says, this one cannot come out by anything but prayer, is 
the way I read this is that the way Jesus cast out the demon is actually a picture of what they should have done, right? He, he did it as was meant to be, dependent upon the Father. But in the scene, Jesus does not pray, at least verbally, right? Because, it, it, because it's not about some formula. It's not, it's not about having some certain chant that you do, that this is the cast out demon chant. Or this, you got to pray for 30 seconds or three minutes or three hours. There's, there's no like set formula. Jesus here is after a posture of heart, a way of life, that it's help, Lord. Father, see this. And it's this posture of heart that is dependent upon the Lord, not on their own skills. The disciples here are very self-reliant. They, they have a formula, and now they're just looking for the new one. Just give us the right one. Maybe, maybe for this kind, we, we got to do this. Just give us that, and we'll be fine. It's the self-reliance that needs to be corrected, that it's this help, Lord, that is meant to be coming from the disciples. They're like sheep who have wandered. They think they're okay away from the shepherd. And Jesus actually allowing them to fail, so they realized that they're being self-reliant and they need dependence upon the Lord day by day by day. So Jesus, as the good shepherd, allows them to fail, allows them to experience that, so they would see, no, it's help, Lord. That's what needs to come from your heart. Because I think the main point here is that Jesus is trying to teach them the way of Christ, the way of following Christ, the way the kingdom is God's power is experienced in weakness. In the weakness of desperate dependence. As we desperately depend upon the Lord, wait on him, seek him, not our own skills, God's grace flows. Now, if that's true, if that is accurate, then, like I said, weakness or desperation or failure or coming to the end of your resources, it may be an obstacle to comfort. That is true. But it's a very conduit of God's power in our life and God's grace in our life, and therefore we want to welcome it. That's the way it worked out in Paul's life. God did not take away the thorn in the flesh, but that actually served to be power for Paul. In the disciples, God allowed them to fail. That actually meant that God would direct them to, this is how you find grace, is those moments cause you to cry out to God. Now, sometimes God might remove the thorn in the flesh, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he heals the boy, sometimes he doesn't. But the reality is the same. It's a posture of heart that says, Lord, I have nothing, and I need you. Can you say that this morning? Lord, I know that the weakness I experience, the insults, the shame, the calamities, the hardships, they're causing discomfort in my life. And yet I know that this is the place you have me to bring grace to my heart. Can you say that this morning? If you can't, I think the passage would say, that's, that's okay, you go like this. Lord, I, I believe it. Help my unbelief. I want to embrace that. Because I want to experience your grace. I want to honor you like that. I just don't have what it takes. I don't even have the, the, the strength to make faith happen. Only that can come from you. And that, brothers and sisters, is a good place to be. If this is true, then that means that the presence of weakness 
does not mean that it's the absence of God's power. Sometimes we think like that. When we feel like we're weak, in a weak place, or when we experience hardship or calamities, we're tempted to wonder, is God's grace not with us? But if this passage is true, if this reality is real, then it actually means the opposite. This might, you might be smack dab in the middle of God's power and grace. You'll still feel weak. That's what Paul says. When I'm weak, then I am strong. Not that because I feel strong, but because I know that God's power is working in me, sustaining me, giving me grace to endure to the end. It doesn't always feel pretty. It's messy. It's battle. It's not comfortable. But it's God's grace. Which means then we should assume, most likely, we should probably assume weakness. We should assume hardship, not try to avoid it. We are a culture of people who are weak averse, hardship averse. We do everything we can to avoid pain. This passage and Paul says we ought to welcome it for the sake of experiencing God's power. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean, uh, just a quick disclaimer, that does not mean that you never avoid uh, a situation. I think we do see that from the Apostle Paul. I think we see that uh, from Jesus himself. There are certain situations, uh, as you're called by God, led by God, to avoid certain situations, and that's appropriate. Just that doesn't always mean that's always the case. And we should always be asking, what is God calling me to do here? Uh, and last, uh, I think if this reality is true, then I think uh, this help, Lord, is good vocabulary for our souls. That's, that's a good uh, kind of sort of like a filler words. You know, we all sort of have these filler words that we insert, right? Uh, one of those I just said right there, right, probably? Uh, it's uh, or, or just these knee-jerk responses that you say, like when I walk into the house, uh, the first person to greet, well, not person, the first creature to uh, greet me is usually my dog. And uh, my, I just by instinct, I say, hey, sweet girl. And it just, it just comes out of me. And the help, Lord, would be good vocabulary for us. Now, the hard part about that is if you've grown up in this culture, we don't like asking other people for help. We're actually trained, and we try to train our kids, that independence is a value. To be able to be strong on your own, not having to, to, to get help. That's valuable. right? And so we actually train our kids like that. So we feel embarrassed if we ask, have, to, have to ask for help. If you are, are struggling with resources and you have to ask for financial help, that's embarrassing, so we don't want to ask. If, if your marriage is struggling, we're embarrassed, so we don't want to ask for help. Or you're struggling with anxiety or depression or something, we, we're embarrassed by it, so we don't want to ask for help because we're trained not to. And so it, it's dangerous then to bring this into our walk with the Lord because we're actually made to be people who are utterly dependent and help Lord should be the regular phrase that comes out of our heart. And that would be a very good thing. If you are feeling crushed, God's grace may have you right where he wants you to develop that gut word, gut phrase, help, Lord, help. You're all I have. Well, what do you, what do you think about this reality? How does it land on you? 
I can say for myself, uh, part of me, I, I don't really like it. I, I like to feel strong. This is calling me to, to embrace feeling weak. I don't like that. I, I don't like feeling weak. I want to feel strong. I want to feel in control. And frankly, I'm a little bit nervous of embracing this reality because I don't trust what situations the Lord might call me into because I'm afraid of them. It might go deeper than I'm willing to go. And so there's this sort of like, whoa, I like talking about it, but why don't you give that to those people and just give me a little bit easier reality. And so I struggle with this, mostly because my view of Jesus then is too small. I view his grace as too small. I view his power as too small. So part of me does not like it. But part of me loves it. Because there's a part of my soul that says this has to be true. I know I'm desperate deep down. I know I don't have what it takes. I know I can't face tomorrow. There's no way I can get through this world. And this has to be true. I have to have one who I can cry out to and he'll be with me to give me power and grace to get through. If I don't have that, I'm done. This has to be true. So there's a part of me that absolutely loves it. There was a, there was a moment years back that uh, we, we, there was a lot of hard things happening. And I remember doing the, the dishes uh, and praying to the Lord and I felt excruciatingly weak. I felt like all that Paul is, is saying he's embracing and content with, I felt like, man, I'm experiencing a lot of those things right now. This really is not fun, and I'm crying out to the Lord. And 2 Corinthians chapter 12 comes to mind. So I start praying that, and I get halfway through that as I'm kind of recounting that. And I, and I stopped, and I said something like, you know what, Lord? I don't even know what you're talking about here. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect. I thought I knew what that meant. I have no clue. And frankly, I don't even like it. I don't like this situation. Like, get me out of this. I don't want to experience power through weakness. I want power to get me out of weakness. But Lord, this is where I'm at. And I need this to be true. I need this to be true. You have to work this down deep into my soul so I can rest here. I have nothing else. I'd want to serve you. I want to worship you. I want to stay where you're called. But I don't know what to do. And I need your grace. It has to be true. And I felt free. Because it didn't feel comfortable. didn't feel safe. But yet it was the safest place in the world to be. In the hands of our Lord. Now the question is, is this just pie in the sky, happy talk? You know, things, phrases we do, things we, we talk about so we feel safe in the world. Well, I don't think so. We, we see it in the Apostle Paul. We see it uh, for the, the disciples here. And where do we see this reality most clearly? My mind goes immediately to that holy garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus stared the cross in the face. And the, the Apostle Luke uses words like that Jesus was in agony. Agony over what's to come. He falls on his face, and he's crying out, Father, if you can take this cup, take it from me. And in utter anguish and weakness, sweating drops of blood, we read in, in Luke, it says, an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. 
strengthen the son to continue to endure so that the words could come. Father, if you can take this cup, take it from me. And yet, not my will be done, but yours be done. And committing himself to the father, committing himself to the cross to win our salvation. Brothers and sisters, that holy night, the very center of the gospel, we see this truth displayed. God's power is made perfect in weakness and in the anguish of the cross. Our salvation is won, and we know that this reality is true because God has not saved you by the blood of his Son to leave you hang to dry now. He will be with you, brothers and sisters. And as we go to the Lord's table, we remember this promise, and we partake, confessing our belief. We'll, we'll partake together as a two-way speech. One is, is hearing the promise again. God saying, I'm with you. My grace will be sufficient for you. I am for you. And though you experience hardship, that is not to destroy you. You may be crushed, but it's so that help, Lord, is your language. But we also receive it as faith. We confess back to God, we trust you. Even in the midst of pain, we trust your grace will be with us. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to partake with us. Uh, this is about walking in repentant faith, seeking to walk with the Lord faithfully, walking in repentance. It's not about being uh, perfect, but striving to faithfully walk with God in repentant faith. If you're here this morning and you're not walking in repentant faith, or you do not worship Jesus as the Christ, and we ask you not to partake. But if, if you're here uh, 